Hello, hello. Welcome back to episode 25 of Creative Writing. How you doing, Grandma? How you doing, Grandpa? I hope you enjoyed last week's episode. I'd like to give a huge shout out and thanks to all the Wisconsin drag racers. Most of all, Michelle Mankiewicz. Thanks for being such a good sport on the show. Our interview was so much fun and it was so awesome. And also thanks to Chris for being the butt of some seriously awesome jokes. Um, did some follow-up research online. I'll bring you the results of their drag racing weekend later. And if you got a chance to listen to last week's episode, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed throwing it together. On this week's show, I'd like to talk about the history of motorcycling, both the past and the future. Now, I'm a big history buff and I listen to a lot of history podcasts, so when I was trying to emulate those, uh, it was rough for me to figure out who I wanted to, you know, kind of embody. Do I, did I want to be like Dan Carlin or did I want to be sort of like Dave Anthony and Gareth Reynolds? Uh, it was really, really tough for me to figure this out. So why don't we listen to a couple of their podcasts? Let's analyze the clips together and let's figure out which one, um, I picked. All right, here we go. Now, Dan is a political correspondent as well as a history nut, and he's very scripted and very edgy sounding. He sounds like a broadcast journalist. Um, He does a really good job of presenting his work in a linear, clear form, and he's extremely knowledgeable, has cites lots of sources. So that's definitely not exactly my style, but uh, let's listen to a, a clip of Dan here he's talking about the Achaemenid Persian Empire. So let's give it a listen and see if this is what I should emulate. Writes on the Byzantine inscription on the mountainside, quote, Darius the king says, Afterwards, Phraortes fled with a few horsemen. There is a district in Medea, Raga by name, and there he went. After that, I sent an army in pursuit. Phraortes was seized and led to me. I cut off his nose, ears, and tongue, and I put out one of his eyes. At my gate he was kept bound, and all the people looked at him. After that I impaled him at Ecbatana, and in the fortress at Ecbatana I hanged the men who were his foremost followers. So you can tell, Dan has this style that's almost like a medieval sportscaster. He takes you there, he takes you into the, uh, like almost immerses you as if you were watching it on TV, play by play, and he, no, you know, that's a direct quote from a historian, but he, he almost makes you feel like you're there hearing it from that person's perspective. And uh, he really drives these images home and he drives home, you know, the, the message behind the whole, you know, history that he's covering. So, uh, pretty awesome, but a little dry at times. So, and, and very long winded his, you know, podcasts are like four hours long easily for each one. So let's listen to a clip now from, uh, Dave and Gareth and see what sort of like spin on history they give us. A letter written from, quote, many soldiers to their general. Quote, Dear fuckface. Hey, shit fuck. <laughs> we weren't being literal about being dirt eaters, you fucking mother shit ass. Now we need coats and a meal. Sign a guy eating his shoe in a bowl. 
Well, as you can tell, it's going to be a hard decision to make. I, I don't know. For me, uh, I'm just going to have to maybe try and hit a, a happy medium. And that's what I'm going to do my best to try and bring you the history of motorcycling. So my interest in the history of motorcycling actually comes from an article I read on Total Motorcycle a while back called The Future of Motorcycling. So my perspective is going to be the future of the history, which will eventually become the future again, which will eventually our future will become our past, which will be history. So if that's not crazy enough for you, I'm going to take you back in time here. I have a bunch of show notes prepared. I've re-recorded this a couple times because it started to get a little dry. If you're falling asleep listening to your own stuff, you got problems. I also kind of went down a dark path with it, so I decided to turn it around. And before I get into my blib blab about the history of motorcycling, I wanted to remind you that the Quail Motorcycle Gathering happened this, uh, well, today, I guess. And um, I think the Misfits went down there, Motorcycles and Misfits. So I'm super excited. Actually, I know they are. I just looked at their page, Facebook page. I shouldn't pretend. Uh, I know they were down there. They got some really sweet looking interviews. And uh, I bet they were just at home today, tonight. Uh, scrambling together to throw, you know, edit those babies into the show and whatnot. So, yeah, I'm really excited to hear about that. It's kind of in between us, and uh, it would have been cool to go. However, I had family stuff going on, and that's one reason why this is going to be a little bit later than I wanted it to be. But hey, family first, you know what I'm saying? So, the history history of the motorcycling and the future of motorcycling, as it would be. Um, I'm proud to announce to you that I wrote some of my show notes in cursive. And if you go back a few episodes ago to the handwriting and handkerchiefs episode, you'll know I talked about how handwriting and motorcycles kind of sprouted up in the United States around the same time. So yeah, I was able to write some of it down in cursive, which if you listen to the bloopers, uh, when I first recorded this, I just said that it cursive is looks like a bunch of swoops and swirls like a drawing of pubes and you know what kind of if you don't read if you don't you know a lot of people don't use the like latin alphabet i don't know what the hell it's called but um i'm sure it just looks like a bunch of squiggly little pubes when you write in cursive so uh i'm sure in 20 years that's what it's going to look like to kids hey people used to write in pubes back when when i was uh before i was born so (laughs) what does it have to do with the history of motorcycling nothing but does it have to do with the future? Well, let's find out. So most people recognize that the motorcycle started in 1885 with the Daimler riding car, which was called the the right wagon. And um, they call it the first motorcycle, and they created this thing to establish a test vehicle for uh, Gottlieb Daimler and, and Wilhelm Maybach's uh, to showcase their petroleum engine. But... You know, I'm calling it audible here because as we know, steam-powered velocipedes um, or, you know, steam-powered cycles existed for almost 20 years before the gas-powered ones did. So we're talking, you know, right around 1865. This is like right after the Civil War. You know what I mean? Like, this is pretty crazy. I don't don't even think uh, technically Germany and Italy were like unified countries yet, you know? So, so anyway... I'm, I'm saying that the gas, the, the steam-powered ones were the first cycles. And before that, people rode around on these things called bone crushers that were these bikes that were like a giant 
uh, balance bike for adults. You know, if you know what a Strider is for little kids, basically that's what adults rode around. They didn't have crank pedals. They weren't, um, you know, pneumatic tires. They rode around on basically wagon wheels with a wooden frame and smashed your junk all the bits. And I'm sure they had like a horse. I'm, you know, that's why they call a bike seat a saddle because you literally did. It was like throwing a saddle on a horse. And that's something else I want to get into a little bit later too is, you know, motorcycle is pretty much the modern horse. So, um, yeah, Sylvester Roper developed the steam-powered two-cylinder in 1868, right? So this is just a few years after the Civil War had ended. And I think this is in America only. They, they existed in Europe before that, I think in 1865. So, yeah, so Roper's, Roper's wagon, or Roper's wagon, his, his cycle is what I'm going to call the first motorcycle, okay? And it was basically a boiler strapped underneath you. And, you know, you had limited, you were limited by the amount of... Uh, steam power that you could carry around in the water and all that stuff. So he just basically strapped one of these suckers onto one of these bone crushers and called it a motorcycle. So fast forward to 1896, June 1st of 1896, um, poor old Sylvester Roper died in Cambridge, Massachusetts, demonstrating one of his motorcycles. And since you are basically uh, straddling a big boiler of hot water and you know they could blow up i'm sure that the accident was not very comfortable or you know i'm sure it was a very uh displeasurable way to die so unfortunately he probably had his testicles blown up into his face and his ass charred off and sad to say but that was the end of the steam cycle and of course, you know, we were already seeing gas cycles come on board about 10 years before that anyway. So there, it was just a matter of time. It, it was basically their carburation going to fuel injection, <laughs> steam going to gas, right? So, um, yeah, so 1897, the very next year, this fellow named George Hendy starts a bicycle company. And, you know, we'll get, we'll get back to him. One year later, the Spanish-American War broke out. And Teddy Roosevelt, who at the time was a failed, uh, you know, he ran, I think he ran for mayor in New York and lost. He, his wife and mom had died. He'd gone to be a cattle rancher, you know, gone to do just like, you know, sow his oats for a while, returned to New York. Um, he wasn't even, you know, he was the uh, assistant secretary of the Navy at the time when he joined the Rough Riders, which... Basically, the Rough Riders in 1898, they were a, a volunteer cavalry. And I mean, this is, this is, we're, you know, we're right on the brink of the, you know, second industrial revolution, right? If you go back and listen to that show that I blabbed on about, um, the turn of the century here. And in a few short years, you know, in 15 years, we're going to have motorcycles. Um, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but we're going to be seeing motorcycles rise. Uh, more and more. Obviously, the car came on board, but they're shipping horses over to Cuba. You know, Cuba was fighting a war of independence against Spain, and we kind of stepped in because they blew up one of our uh, ships or sunk it or whatever. And um, so we stepped in and said, hey, so we, we're fighting the Spanish now, too. And the way that they did this was to ferry a bunch of cavalry over to Cuba. And 
I mean, it's so funny. The whole reason I'm talking about this is because this is at a time where motorcycles are already popping up on the scene and we're still using horses and mules and stuff like that. So to me, I just thought it was something that you don't often think about when you think about the history of motorcycles. When you think about the history of anything, you kind of elude, you get the big picture, the, the, uh, you know, the history channel version of it where, you know, they kind of romanticize what was happening, even if it's not a, uh, Romanticize, even if they're telling about something horrible that happened, they kind of don't fill you in on the rest of the stuff that was happening at the time. So, I mean, we've got like yellow fever, malaria. These things are rampant, and especially on Cuba. And if you went over there to fight, you know, you had to be in quarantine before you could come back to the States because that stuff was, you know, wiping us out here too. So all this crazy stuff happening, right, when motorcycles are popping up. And, and motorcycle was probably just like the tiniest of blips on anybody's radar at the time because they weren't even being mass produced yet. The other crazy thing about this time period is that, you know, we're already getting into a war with Spain in, in 1898. We had just come out of our own American Civil War 40 years before. So it's interesting if you think about, you know, when when Sylvester Roper was riding around on his steam cycle, just a couple years earlier, people had become free for the first time in this country. You know, black Americans were just... Uh, you know, gaining their freedom. So we have two great things happening. We have like an, an end of slavery, the beginning of motorcycling. Basically, if you think about it, there could have been some really cool MCs started that year, but I, I don't. I think they're gonna wait till the '60s to start making some some clubs. At least at least the '40s. So, yeah, we have all this crazy stuff happening. And and if you think about it, like you could have fought in the Civil War and still rode a motorcycle. You know, plenty of people lived uh, past the turn of the century. So. Um, it's just kind of incredible that you could have maybe interacted with, uh, you know, Americans, the first Americans before Europeans came and ran them off. Um, we kind of erroneously call them Indians. So you could have fought against Indians with like Kit Carson and all those guys and then rode an Indian motorcycle, you know, if you lived to be 60. So yeah, it was a crazy time in, in the United States and as far as motorcycling is concerned. and. Although, you know, Teddy, getting back to the Rough Riders in Cuba and all that stuff, uh, Roosevelt never rode a motorcycle, which is kind of crazy to me because, you know, we when you think of him as an adventurer and a nature lover and a, and a, a horseman, basically, um, it's just crazy that motorcycles were totally popping up and replacing horses. And I don't know if he didn't ride one out of uh, spite because he was, you know, he liked horses and he was like, you know resisting motorcycles or if they just never crossed this path. But ironically, wars would provide motorcycle with new life and in more ways than one. And we'll, we'll see that in a second. But yeah, I just, I really wanted to showcase this first when motorcycles were first popping up that they didn't immediately uh, replace the horse right away, even though they could have. So I thought that was interesting. I suppose even today, technology takes a little bit to catch on. And when we do see uh, motorcycles begin to replace horses is roughly about 16 years later. So right around 1914, horses started being replaced by motorcycles in World War One um, as a means to carry messages, perform reconnaissance, so on and so forth. You know, sometimes they could get across uh, roads way faster or certain terrain faster than a horse could, especially if a horse is pulling a big wagon with some stuff. And you know, you, they in World War One they used horses a lot to move artillery and supply trains still. So if you needed that uh, animal to pull, you know, 
that crucial piece of equipment, you didn't want to waste them running errands. So that's what motorcycles are perfect for. Quick transport, all that great stuff. Now, not to be like a Quentin Tarantino movie and jump back and forth between time, but I kind of did. I mentioned George Hendy, and you know he was a bicycle builder, threw a motor on one of his bikes, and Indian was started in 1901. Harley was started in 1903. So we've got two American manufacturers. I, I, I think there's a little story here about how Harley hosed Indian to get a deal for producing motorcycles for World War II. But what I do know is that, you know, but, you know, Harley and Triumph were the major developers of motorcycles for World War II specifically. But between World War I and World War II, World War II there was literally like, I don't know, scores of motorcycle brands popping up, at least in Britain. And a lot of them are for arms manufacturer companies, you know, that had the tooling and the factories like Royal Enfield, uh, BSA, which is British Small Arms. You know, we had weird ones, AJS, all that stuff. If you uh, ever do get to a, a chance to go to, like, probably Barber will have this stuff and, and the Solvang Museum. And, of course, if you got to go to the Quail, you'll see all these crazy historic motorcycles popping up. And this is also when DKW and BMW popped up in Europe around the same time. And it's funny because after World War One, you know, just a little side side piece here, there was three brothers uh, named the Ducati brothers. And after World War One, they started making radio equipment. You know, 1926, I believe, is when they got their start. They had this really nice uh, factory in the city. I think it's Panigale is the city. Uh, that's that's why the modern bike is named that. Um, they were pre- they got into radios and soon they were doing transmission equipment. Then they got into optics and all sorts of cool stuff when World War II came knocking. And then uh, you know Mussolini made an agreement with the Germans and the Germans kind of came in, took over operations of the plants, and the Allied forces uh, just couldn't have all that advanced radio transmission and technology going to the Axis powers. So. They bombed the factory in 1944. Now, when I was looking on Total Motorcycle, they're t- they were talking about the future of motorcycles, but they kind of laid out the past as well. And they were talking about how between 1900 and 1955, the creation of current large motorcycle companies began. But they kind of left out why, you know. We only had a couple here in the, in the States. I mean, that's excluding Crocker and... Um, a bunch of the other ones that popped up here as well that have since gone out of business. But they kind of glo- didn't really explain why. They just gave you some years. You know, Honda pops up in 46, Suzuki in 52, Kawasaki in 54, and Yamaha in 55. Now, uh, the Ducati, you know, also, if you think of Italy, if you think of Japan, they're very bicycle-centric countries. Or, you know, nowadays they're going a little bit more to, like, scooters and stuff. But they're very two-wheeled oriented, and they have been for a long time. And if you think about getting the shit bombed out of you in World War II, uh, you need to get back. You need to get your country back, Your you know, all your other compatriots and your society basically your economy everything needs to get back people need a a way to get around and you have some limited tooling left over you know what hasn't been destroyed by war you you can use and you've got you know whatever materials and you have left over and it's like what do people need they need cheap transportation and what's cheap right now you know the bicycle was kind of gone by the wayside to some degree so let's do some motorcycles we used them in the wars we saw how effective and efficient they were well let's bring that over to 
our peeps, man, and get them on two wheels. And it's cheap, cheaper than buying a car, cheaper to make than buying a car. You don't have to make such big motors. You don't have to get a bunch of sheet metal. So boom. And that's why war in one way would provide motorcycles with a new life because people could see how valuable they were as a transportation and you know the, the uses that they have for war but also getting the shit bombed out of you you don't have car manufacturing companies anymore because a lot of those got blown up because they were making tanks for the war effort so you can start a motorcycle company with a little bit less than you need for you know a car you still need the raw materials and stuff but you don't need to make a whole bunch of shit and, and most of your tooling you know you have some smaller tooling and it's what you need. You don't need big uh, sheet metal plants and stuff like that to make a motorcycle. So all these other manufacturers that started popping up, you know, Ducati had radios and transmission stuff. Well, they're going to switch over to motorcycles. Yamaha made pianos for the longest time since the 1800s, I think. And so they had some limited small tooling. Well, now they're going to make... Um, motorcycles, you know, so Honda, all these guys the same way. It popped out of a, a necessity for people to uh, be able to get around in this new post-war, um, you know, they're, they're post-war countries for pretty cheap and reasonable. So they're the most logical step to take, especially when people are already riding bikes and stuff. They're familiar with two wheels, right? So that's kind of how it all got started. Um, don't want to get too dry here. I'm going to, I'm going to gloss over a lot of the stuff and skip straight to the future. Cause they, you know, total motorcycle, this article was updated in like 2003, which is cracking me up because, uh, Oh wait, here's an update from September of 2003. Yeah. Okay. So Kawasaki, they, they, they were just talking about how we kind of started to rise and then fall because after post-World War II, we had the baby boomer generation so, of course, there's more people on Earth, and the guys from the war were into bikes because it was like flying a plane, you know what I mean? That's where a lot of motorcycle clubs came from, and a lot still do today is vets, you know what I mean? So, it, it is an integral part of motorcycling history in the United States, at least, that these guys wanted to fly basically two feet off the ground so that a motorcycle gives you that feeling. It's got, you know, roll and lean and pitch and all that great stuff, so... The baby boomers happen, and yeah, of course, sales are going to go up. And so they were just given some sales figures saying, you know, what's the future going to be like? Because they started to kind of decline a little bit. Well, then, uh, you know, in the 70s, all of a sudden you have, well, I wouldn't say 70s, I'd say early 80s, you have things breaking apart. You don't just have a standard bike that you race now. If you look at 70s, uh, gold wings and then look at a 70s race bike they don't look that different but nowadays if you look like a gold wing it looks like a freaking motorhome on two wheels and a race bike obviously are, are totally different creatures nowadays they're starting to look more like planes again getting little wings and stuff on them so yeah we do have this like split and where cruisers started to you know come popular and harley davidson kind of was making the same bike they were making back in World War II and all these other people started using plastic shit making fairings and whatnot so it is kind of it was kind of funny to think about when the split and the art, their article talked about it but then to see what they were thinking of way back in 2004 now the reason that it's funny to me is because fast forward you know 20 years no 2004 is not 20 years ago but uh, my math's pretty horrible I feel almost ashamed saying that having interviewed a teacher last week and then also being married to one, I should be ashamed of myself. But 2004, it's like 12 years ago, close enough to 20 for me. But anyway, yeah, they're talking about uh, 
you know, all the stuff happening in 2004. And I, looking back on it now, you know that the market, the economy globally was just about to drop, have the shit kicked out of it and have the ass drop out of it. So they're talking about all this crazy, crazy, great futuristic stuff. And uh, they're show, they were talking about the Kawasaki ZZRX, which if you've never seen, looks like a futuristic sport tour. You know, I can't even describe it. But, you know, Honda had the Rune out and they're like, oh, look at this Rune. Oh, and do you know what's going to be coming soon is the alligator from Dan Gurney. You know, if you're not familiar with Dan Gurney, he's a famous American driving legend. And he built this car or a motorcycle called the alligator, which is really just like a foot forward sport racing. I don't know. It was electric uh, and it almost looked like a scooter because I don't think it had um, being electric. It didn't really need all the, uh, you know, clutch and all that stuff. But it was like a recumbent almost it's hard to describe but you know we haven't seen this stuff happen and so it's just funny looking back on these i've looked back at popular mechanics from 1950 and they were like in the year 2000 we're gonna have you know flying cars and we're gonna have houses that just have a drain in the middle that you just your wife just squirts down and it was showing this lady in a dress just hosing down the house well hey guys women don't have to wear dresses anymore uh, if they don't want to. So also we don't have flying cars and squirtable houses. So looking back, even, even 12 years ago at some of this stuff, it's just funny to see what they were predicting would be the future. Now, electric motorcycles, sure, they're on the way, but they're like, you know, showing hover bikes and shit. I don't think that's ever going to happen. I don't think we're going to find the need to defy gravity on such a small you know, personal basis that the, the forces necessary to overcome the force of gravity, especially to hover something in the air that weighs X amount of pounds. I don't think we're ever going to need that or find that, you know what I mean? And, and really, I don't think hovering is really that much of an advantage over just rolling. So you got to think about when you're thinking about the future, you kind of got to think about what's practical, you know what I mean? Um, and that's why we have all these visions of what could possibly be man star wars could be like in 20 years right no dude look 20 years ago at motorcycles um they had abs on them some of them had like auto canceling turn signals like they had some pretty fancy stuff that's still pretty standard and not even standard on some bikes you know what i mean like i don't think uh the future is going to be as crazy as people think it will be but you know we're definitely moving in that direction now to get out of the bland dry history all that Yes, I'm sick of talking about it. Let's talk about something fun. So on today's calculus lesson, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit of racing. So the Arizona Mile happened today. And if you have not had the chance to watch it yet on Fans Choice TV or catch up with any of the headlines, you know, you don't want a spoiler alert. Go ahead and put your fingers in your ear holes right now. All right, everybody, while they're looking like idiots with their fingers in their ear holes, I'm not going to talk about racing. I'm not going to talk about the Arizona Mile. I'm going to kick back and tell you guys what's going on in my life. Well, recently my battery died and I had to order a new one. And I hate paying like a 100 bucks for a stinking battery. And I'll do whatever I can to, you know, a lot of times when your battery goes flat or something like that, it's just like the electrodes or something, you know what I mean? You need to add some water to it. They're getting a little dry or whatnot. Um, if you let them, if you don't maintain your batteries, if they are like not a maintenance free, um, you will find that you will warp the plates and they'll kind of short themselves out or whatnot. But 
uh, I had a gel cell, and those still, I mean, gel cell, Schmel still, they're basically just a, a battery that's got, like, they're sometimes called AGMs. Um, they're absorbed gas mat sometimes, and if they are gel, I'm not really 100% sure um, what is inside them, but mine was probably more like an AGM because it looked like there was uh, definitely some water in there, but they're basically the same thing. They just, what it does is that the, the mat, basically sucks up the electrodes and holds it and whatnot so that it doesn't have water slushing around and pouring out when you tip it sideways. So at any rate, they're, they're basically the same as a lead acid. They work the same. They just don't, um, a lot of times if they're maintenance free and stuff, they don't gas out. So that was cool. I had, I had to get that cause I have mine mounted, um, unconventionally in my motorcycle. And the thing is, is that you could still pop the top off and you could still fill it with stuff. So I tried to revive it. Um, I tried charging it. I tried trickle charging it. I tried, you know, the deep cycle action, uh, tried riding my bike around. Nothing's happened. This thing is just dead and it's, uh, I'm going to say it's like three years old. So, I mean, it got, I got good uh, use out of it. You know what I mean? So it's not like it's only a year old and it's dying and I'm mad or, you know, whatever. So the thing is, uh, you need to put your battery on a tender. And if you don't have a tender, I don't have a tender. That's like the, I usually ride them enough to keep them charged up. If you're not riding it, even I would say like more than like once every two weeks, I think it could probably go, you know, flat on you pretty fast. But as long as you're riding your bike, you know, a few couple times, a couple few times a week. And if you have an older bike, uh, I used to have a older cars too and older bikes are the same way they don't really have like an alternator they they basically have um what is you know basically like a a, like a generator and it doesn't charge idle you kind of have to you know for the stator to give energy back to your battery you got to be at a certain rpm for it to be cranking out stuff well nowadays you know alternators kind of crank or you know give you back um recharge your battery at idle and basically that's why a lot of old cars um, and old bikes you can buy these newer kits that will kind of upgrade that and i know especially because i used to have an old volkswagen bug and there were alternator kits and i never understood why people would want to get the alternator kit and it's because of that under a certain rpm you weren't really sending anything you're running on battery rather than charging it and so that's where driving around charges up your battery but on newfangled bikes um it's not not such. I mean, usually, usually you'll have enough of a, um, you know, enough RPM or whatever will charge your battery. So my my bike that I was trying to um, charge the battery on is an old bike, and therefore does not really charge at idle. So even riding it around, um, couldn't get the battery restored. I might have talked about it the other week how my battery died in the bank parking lot and all that stuff. Same bike. So just been um, bumping it, and so there's. Did a couple tests on it where I would like charge it. It looked like it was holding 12 or 13 volts, at, you know, just a static charge. Stick it on the bike, turn the key on, and automatically it drops down to six. So I uh, checked my bike for all sorts of electrical problems. There's nothing draining it. And have a, have a brand new battery for uh, my other bike. So uh, just put it in there. And, of course, it's, like, fresh. So it just uh, cranked right over no problemo. So basically it's just the battery. The battery was just flat. So anyway, instead of paying like a billion jillion dollars for like you know, an interstate or something like that, uh, I tend to go on eBay cause I'm a cheap mofo and 
I the last battery I got was from a company called TMS. They're probably from out of Hong Kong or something like that. So at any rate, uh, I'm got a new battery coming on the way. So I hope to get back on the road. And for people that uh, are just now unplugging your ears, um, Brian Smith won the Arizona Mile today. He I called it. I'm telling you, uh, this whole future thing. I predicted the sidecar thing. Um, I said in the last episode when I was talking to Michelle to watch out for Brian on the mile and God, I'm feeling like I'm on cloud nine. Um, I'm going to go ahead and quit my job because I think I'm going to, uh, be able to launch this podcast into a lucrative for, I mean, if the future is going to go how I think it is, then I just, I just might as well do that. Right. So there's this thing called the, uh, Bader Minoff effect which is basically when you hear some weird obscure thing or your friend tells you about like some little piece of information something you're like totally unfamiliar with or you never heard about and then or maybe you come across uh you know some obscure little thing and then the next thing you know you're seeing it everywhere or you run across it the same thing often again you know repeatedly and repeatedly you start running across it and oh my god here it is i think that's what i did with the with the uh, sidecar thing and uh, I, I think that I just maybe saw that there was a trend starting. And then all of a sudden now they just seem like they're everywhere because it's like that thing where you, you tell yourself, hey, it's probably because I'm looking for it now. That's a, I think that's called selection bias. And the Bader-Meinhof effect is just sort of the same thing, not to be confused with the other thing where you're looking for that now, but just sort of the same thing where it just appears to be popping up more and more. If you go back to like 2003, you'll see sidecars were just probably as popular then as they are now. So I'm just making a bigger thing out of it than it really is. This Brian Smith winning the mile thing, though, that is crazy. That is like on point. So let's get into some more racing action. I wanted to cover uh, last week's racing at the WIR, which is the Wisconsin International Raceway in Kakana. Or, or Kakanao, as I pronounced it in uh, our interview with Steve Markowicz. It really got me interested. I wanted to see what's going on. I wanted to see how they performed. And I wanted to see uh, what was up with all the boys dancing in their underwear online that they were posting. So I had to check it out. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, have yourself a little look-see. Let's talk about what went down at Kakana. <laughs> So the first round callouts went as followed. I know I I pronounced Wakesha Wakesha and I pronounced some other stuff wrong. I'm probably pronouncing these names wrong. So uh, Dylan Pulley versus Preston Nipple is probably Dylan Poulet versus Preston Knipel. Uh They battled for the number one spot. While we had Jake Robert, he got in the loser for round two. Micheli Mankiewicz for the loser for round three. And uh, let me let me tell you, really, it's uh, Dylan Pulley versus Preston Knipple for the one spot. Jake Roberts gets the loser for round two. Michelle Mankiewicz gets the loser of that race for round three. So Dustin Durant versus Kring, Kring Sing Sang for the sixth spot. <laughs> Dustin Durant versus Chris Sing Sang for the sixth spot. Justin High gets the loser for the second round. Harry Burmeister gets the loser for that race for round three, and Eric Bresser gets the loser of that race in the fourth round. So, Jason Gulmeyer already calling out Dustin and Chris for some jixer on jixer crime going down, to which Chris Singsheim replied, a couple of sick jixes, bruh. 
I took the liberty of looking it up since I talked about history in the first half of the podcast, and guess what? Back in the day of the Velocipede or Steam Cycle, they would have said, Certainly it was never the illest of pairings for GSXRs, my good man. Carry on. All right, I bet you want to know how they fared. Well, here were the results. For the top 10, we have Jake Roberts in the first position, followed by Preston Nipple. In the third spot, Michelle Mankiewicz. Fourth spot, Dylan Pulley. Fifth is Chris Singsheim. Sixth is Jason Gullmeyer. Seventh is Dustin Durant. Eighth is Justin Howe. Ninth is Eric Presser. And tenth was Terry Burmeister. If you want to find out more about the 11th spot and after, well, this is the uh, WIR's top 10 bikes, sucka, so you're going to have to look somewhere else for that. However, following the race, the banter was incredulous. Somebody challenged the group to a Ricky Bobby. Do you know what the Ricky Bobby is? If you lose the race, you run around the pits and only your helmet and underwear screaming, I'm on fire, made famous by Will Ferrell in the movie Talladega Nights, The Legend of Ricky Bobby. Shortly following the conclusion of the races, Jason Gulmeyer already started calling out for the June round of the Real Street Drags. At least that's what I think RSD stands for. I know it stands for Roland Sands Designs, but I'm going to call this Real Street Drags. So, um, yeah, basically he wanted to challenge and throw down Michelle Mankiewicz for the Dorito Ace 2.0. And uh, if you scrolled further down a little bit on their list of uh, goings-on, you could see that uh, Michelle held the Doritos like a little baby and had a cocky grin on her face the whole time. And, uh, yeah, so people didn't like that. Apparently she has a pantry full of Doritos and racing for Doritos rather than pinks is like gotta be the icing on the cake if you're a cheap mofo like me. So if you like food, I would suggest going up against these guys. They're bringing mac and cheese, taco dip, uh, all sorts of Doritos and cookies and all this great stuff. So uh, they also like to do things like run up bitches. Quote, Guy Bellinger, I'm calling out one through ten. I'm ready to run up this bitch. So apparently uh, they run up some bitches. Um, Somebody wants to just go fast and shake and bake and make a couple of Top Gun quotes. So I think it'd be pretty cool to do all that stuff. So yeah, the drag racing looks fun. It's actually the form of racing that I have the least knowledge about, and it was really cool talking to Michelle. Obviously, I edited out a lot there. She was um, very kind and told me exactly what had done been done to her bike and like what sort of stuff they do, and I agreed to keep it confidential. And uh, one thing I did notice after watching all of their videos and comments online is that they appear to love people dancing around in their underwear. And so there's always that. Now, also, I think it's funny because, you know, we, we had a little bit of a chat and Michelle said that, you know, she's a school teacher building a race bike. So, of course, she's poor. I noticed that uh, Mr. Singsheim posted a pic of his hand holding a sandwich and uh, just peanut butter and jelly on some really white bread. So that tells you the sort of commitment these people have to racing. You know, they're willing to sacrifice nutrition for speed. And uh, I think a true racer, you know, that's, that's one of the biggest attributes that you'll find. They make lots of personal sacrifices. Um, a lot of times their dignity and uh, sanity and uh, even a manatee. They probably sacrificed a manatee just to uh, anything that <laughs> gained a couple tents. So I've seen the official top 10 chalkboard, and it's looking pretty good. 
and uh, I'm excited to see who moves up and down. I don't think they went racing this weekend, but uh, we'll check back with them, and, and hopefully we'll see how things are going in a couple months and see how everybody's moved up and down within the Wisconsin drag race scene there. If you're interested, uh, World Superbike's going on this week in Malaysia, and Nikki Hayden coming in eighth in uh, the first race. There's another race, actually, as I'm recording this, probably starting soon. I'm not sure how far ahead they are of us time-wise. I suppose I could use the internet to find that out, but I'm not that interested. I did want to point out that Great Britain is just mopping the floor with everybody else. They had a race, the first race, um, the podium was filled. We had Sykes, Ray, and Davies, and then... You know, we have a Spanish uh, rider on the fourth spot, and then again, Great Britain in fifth, and, you know, drop, drop down again in tenth. So, yeah, they're filling it out really nicely. Um, I don't know what to say. I just, those Kawasaki seem to be kicking ass and taking names, uh, eating Yamahas and shitting Hondas. And so, yeah, for what that's worth, there you go. Out of the racing biz and into the making biz, uh, I did want to say that uh, I know one of the listeners Paul had put on Facebook that he had a fairing that was like I don't know what percent JB weld and I thought that was pretty funny and I mentioned dryer sheets and PVC glue I was only half kidding about that I kind of wanted to get into some like repair hacks and I don't know just fabricating stuff and I've been trying to make some videos here and there of fiberglass and of metal repair or metal making and uh, fabrication and welding and all that great stuff but you know time family all that great stuff coming first so as soon as I get some time and lose the family I will go ahead and make those videos and throw them up on our Facebook page and maybe our YouTube page, which I've been neglecting horribly. So my apologies for that. But yeah, no, it, it brought up something that I kind of want to talk about real fast. And that is uh, fiberglassing. And I've done a fair bit of fiberglassing before. Obviously, I used to um, race cars somewhat. And making stuff for that was always fun. You know, wherever you could replace a part per the rules with fiberglass, it was like immediately, let's do it. You know, so <laughs> fiberglass, quite a few panels for cars, did it for bikes. Um, I did it for number plates when I had to race at Del Mar. So there you go. Um, really easy to fix some fairings and I've seen it done. I know that they're, they're made of ABS and a lot of pipes for the house are made of ABS. So I've actually seen somebody repair a fairing with uh, some fiberglass cloth, like woven, you know, there's different kinds of fiberglass. So I'll get into that basically at some point when I, when I tell you a little bit about fiberglassing and make stuff, but that he used a woven cloth style fiberglass and some PVC glue, and of course the inside of his fairings were black, so it didn't matter. Painted right over it, and Bob's your uncle. It's actually better, probably sticks better than resin since it's a glue specifically for ABS, plastic, you know what I mean? So not 100% sure that everybody uses ABS, but it's a fair bet that, you know, some resins don't stick to certain plastics, and if you use ABS glue, that it will stick. It's just, it's such a good adhesive. And, uh, the fact that I had told Paul to use dryer sheets, I was kidding about, but that's like a, a like a poor, if you're in like a pinch and you need to do like a Mad Max hack, uh, when's the last time you try to rip a dryer sheet? You can't, I mean, they're pretty, they're pretty stiff and they're pretty, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Durable. You know, you just, it's not easy to tear them. So I was only half kidding about that. If you were to try that and you needed to, you know, you're in a pinch or 
again, poor mofo. I I don't judge because I know how it is not having money and still wanting stuff to work and look good. So, um, you could do something like that and have other people criticize you, but, um, call me up. We'll go over together and punch those people in the face. So yeah, dryer sheets, um, PVC glue is like the cheap way of doing like a resin and fiberglass. And, um, if you're in a pinch, I would definitely do it, you know? And if you're not making something that you want to like look good and last for a long time, um, you know, if you're just doing it to hold you over till you maybe buy some new plastics, or if you really don't care and about the inside, you know, nobody's going to be looking on the inside of your fairings anyway. And as long as the outside looks fine, it shouldn't really matter that much. So as long as the repair looks good and it holds, uh, that's really all you got to worry about. And once you start getting into stuff like fiberglassing and you start getting into fabricating, you'll realize how invaluable wood can be. And being a good wood worker, whether you're doing metal casting, usually when you're putting up um, any sort of casting, when you're, when you're making up like a dummy part, you usually do it out of wood first. You cast the piece and then you do all the machining on it after that. So wood is like the quintessential mother of all, you know, techniques for fabbing. When you're doing fiberglass, you can make a wood buck. Um, when you're doing metalworking, you can make a wood buck and, you know, pound around it, form it over the buck, you know, check your check your shape, how it's coming. Um, wood is actually used a lot in fiberglassing and a lot of times you can fiberglass right over it. Um, you know, it depends on what you're making. You can use it for, you know, structure inside of it and it's not going to do anything. It's just going to make it as strong as stronger than fiberglass. It's going to make it as strong as a piece of wood. It might add a little bit of weight, but it depends on, like I said, what you're making it for. You might want that, or you might want to be mounting stuff to it later and you want something inside that you can drill into. And there you go. You know, you got a wood core. And so it really, it doesn't matter what you use. I had, I have been collecting, um, dryer lint for the longest time. Cause I wanted to make a point about this that I've seen before where people make, um, you know, if you're whipping out a bunch of, you got a mold and you're whipping out like a bunch of little set pieces or something. I, I saw it for, uh, some artists did it for a, a photo shoot. They just needed some quick, um, you know, didn't want to like mold a bunch of stuff out of plastic, use dryer sheets and you, all you have to do is make one mold and then press it to, you know, press your pieces together within that mold. You know, you have a male and a female piece and you're, you're using dryer lint in between to use as basically your substrate for your, your cast. And so it was pretty cool. A lot of times you can do that with, um, you know, you do that with fiberglass. You have like a male and a female, you put the gel coat, you slap them, your pieces down and then pull them apart and voila, you know, however you do it. So yeah, it just depends on the shape, what you're doing, you know, how complicated your project is, but I'll probably be going over some really simple fiberglass stuff later. And like I said, I hopefully I'll be able to make some really cool videos. And then I also wanted to show a little bit of metal fab because it's sort of the same thing. As long as you're, if you're bending, um, I mean, I could show you English wheel stuff and I don't have a shrinker or a tucker, but I do use forks and hammers and stuff like that to do all that. So, um, I mean, I could show you techniques, but the thing is, is practice, 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 right? One of the best things I can tell you is that hand making tools is like the first step. And that's what I wanted to talk about also with the 
you know, if you look on Facebook, I've pinned it to the top. Chris wants to see your tool. And uh, Chris Singsheim, one of the listeners and guy I've, I've talked about, like, in nearly the last five episodes, probably, um, really interested in seeing what handmade tools you have made. And I noticed that a couple of the guys from Stockers for Squares posted up a hammer that they made out of a baseball bat. And when I was on some metal shaper forums, uh, that is one of the most common uses for a Louisville slugger is making a, a hammer for it. Uh, it's got the perfect thing. You got the handle already. So you just cut that out and then you take the, uh, round, the top edge of the bat that's usually round and that becomes a wonderful, uh, forming hammer. And then a lot of times we'll taper it down to almost a point on the other side for like a shrinking hammer and it just, or, you know, round it a little bit smaller just so you can get a, a better, smaller radius than the large end. So it works. I mean, guys swear by it. Guys will go out and buy those bats just to cut them down and make a hammer out of it because a wooden hammer is one of the best things you can have for forming metal. That and a good good old tree stump, believe it or not. You know, making a, a dish in the top of a tree stump and working, you know, you can make round forms right out of that. So there's two things you could make out of stuff you might have lying around the house or just lying around your neighborhood. Um, I don't have any trees in my house anymore, but, uh, place I used to live, uh, plenty of people would cut down their trees and just leave the stumps out on the, um, for the waste to pick up. Cause we had like green waste versus trash waste. So they would just leave it out there for the green waste truck to pick up and you could just cruise down the street and grab a tree stump off. You know, people were cutting down trees all the time. So trimming them back, whatnot. So that's an idea. Get yourself a couple tools. Start making your tools right now so that by the time in 14 years, when I get around to actually making these videos and talking about making this stuff, we have a little bit of a tool base built up. What I would recommend if you want to um, get into metal making for sure would be the tree stump and a good hammer. Even a ball peen hammer, you could probably go to get a little like brass tack hammer and even a flat piece of bar works. And that's, you know, a lot of people use a, like a spoon and it's for, you can smooth out finishes. If you really get into the nitty grit of some handmade metal stuff, they'll use spoons to smooth out the surface a lot of time. So yeah, that, and you know, any power tool that you have laying around that maybe you don't use as much anymore, or it's getting broken and maybe the motor's still good in it, those things, you can make planishing hammers out of like reciprocal saws and all sorts of cool stuff. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to use it for what it was made for. You can take it apart and, you know, re remake it into something totally useful. Um, the last thing I want to talk about here, and we don't have that much time to yap about it. I've wasted my time and your time just blabbing mostly about nothing for the past, uh, 50 minutes here. So I'll try to say something useful. And that is in the past few episodes, I've kind of been in a backhanded way, sort of dogging on technology while also promoting it. And I just wanted to tell you about some interviews I had listened to last week regarding that very topic. Um, one of the things that I often talk about is, you know, ABS and all this stuff and how writers, can they, does it make you a better writer to have all these safety features, what we're calling safety features. It's really writer aid features and stuff like that. I don't know if it makes uh, the people any safer, but it does try to make you a better motorcyclist by having this stuff on there. We're seeing it cross over into the dirt now. Last year, Kawasaki had launch control on their dirt bikes and a lot of people were getting, the, it's called whole shot control or something like that. Um, a lot of people, professional racers were noticing a difference on certain sorts of, um, 
you know, whatever surface you might have been racing in is different from venue to venue. So they were using this, and what it does is it limits power to so your tire doesn't spin, but it still gives you enough to get that grip and launch out and get the hole shots. You know, that's why they call it that, I guess. So now Husky is starting that too. Husky's going to have traction control um, on their bikes and, you know, sort of like horsepower management. And so it's really nothing new, but their motocross line is all going to feature traction control. And that brings me to all the, if, I mean, that's just on dirt. Now you go to uh, some of these dirt bikes are getting ABS, believe it or not. But if you're talking about like a street bike and a street race bike, especially you have rider controls out the wazoo. And I know I talked about IMUs and I know I talked about like dynamic damping and, and every single thing that like all these manufacturers are throwing into these bikes and then how, I, I'm pretty sure I covered before I had read an article about how the new riders, why Marquez is so different than Rossi is Rossi learned on bikes where you didn't have anything besides the rudimentary basics. And now, now the bikes are, have everything. And those old riders that had to learn the limits and like, you know, know how to finesse it aren't riding as hard supposedly as some of the newer riders that just come in and ri- ride a bike like a, like a video game, basically. They power where you shouldn't be able to because the bike's taking over at that point through the electronics package. And that's why some of the older riders are stumbling a little bit and trying to uh, find their way back up. And some of them are phasing out. You know, that's, I think, why some of the riders that we have all revered over the years have actually stepped out of that particular class and gone to other classes where the electronics are limited, so on and so forth. And Something interesting that I wanted to point out is that uh, I heard a great interview with the MotoGP rider, and he was saying that the fact is is that these new bikes, uh, with all the technology that's on them, you can't ride them the way you would ride an old bike and vice versa. And it's because if you take away... If you disable some of the features, I guess, on some of these newer bikes, they've been designed with that in mind. So the frames are different. The the way the chassis is set up is different. And like how the suspension and all that stuff is even designed. Uh, you know, you look at a bike over the last five years, even 10 years, they might not look that different, but guaranteed the stuff that's going into them is different. And the, and the actual, um, the way that things are being put together and working together now uh, he said he guarantees that it's much different. You would not be able to like supersede parts or throw, you know, some older parts on a newer bike or, or vice versa, because it's not going to handle the way that it's been uh, designed for. And so that made me think about all the stuff that I ever said about technology and this and that and how it could be good or bad and basically having it be a hindrance to being a better motorcyclist when actually he pointed out that, you know, <laughs> whether you like it or not, you really can't ride those bikes without that stuff because they've been engineered for it. And it would be a little bit like, you know, taking the power steering pump off of your car and then trying to drive it around. Well, it's been designed with power steering in mind. So you don't have, you know, it's extremely hard to turn a car if you don't have the power steering, you know, if you've ever, if you've ever uh, raced your car and lost the pump or something like that, you know <laughs> how it feels. And if you've ever got into an old car, like maybe your grandpa's car or something and like had to crank the wheel around a hundred times before you, you know, turned right and then crank it back a hundred times and turn left. Well, the old cars, they could put something in there that made it a little better. You know, I, I drove a car without power steering for a long time. I even raced it and under speed conditions, it was just fine. And it's because, you know, it had a, um, 
rack and pinion and it was you know even the ones with the worm gears were, were pretty decent as long as you you're moving but you try that with a modern car and i guarantee there's no way and then obviously you know abs and all that stuff on cars that we take for granted it's been built into the chassis design it's been built into um the other functions of the car you know all the suspension and all that stuff and so he was saying the same thing about the bikes like you can't undo the technology now so it's here to stay and more of it's going to trickle down onto other sort of bikes and and i know we've already talked about imus but uh in the article that I read regarding um, Husky bringing the traction control to their bikes, it said as the years roll on and launch control, which is already on some bikes, uh, expect to see wheelie control and, you know, IMUs hitting dirt bikes. And it's just, it's going to make riding is always incredible, but you know, it's going to make it different, I guess is, is what I'm trying to say. So uh, don't hate on technology because you won't be able to undo it once it's there. So if you don't like it, go buy something like, you know, KLR650 that hasn't changed in 100 years. Or, you know, you can still find some dirt bikes that haven't changed in like many, many years. They're the same from 2000 to 2015, you know. And um, this year they just carry them up, you know what I mean? So there's there's certain bikes out there and then you can you can hear people talk about those bikes and just bag on like how shitty they are, you know? It, it's funny. And talk about what, you know, wow, that thing hasn't changed in X amount of years. So if that's something that you think you'd like, then go, you know, that's great. Great for you. And that's sort of something that I like. You know, I, I attribute it to my friend used to um, be a big Chevy fan and he had a Chevy truck and he would always joke around about how, you know, his truck was a, 80 something or 90 something, but they made the, they used the same parts as they did back in like 1955 or something. Oh, they haven't changed this steering pump or this mess or something. And I thought, dude, what a hunk of shit, you know, like that's pretty crappy. However, what I did not realize is that he, if his truck broke down, he had a bajillion parts to choose from because everybody was making that same master cylinder or like, you know, booster, vacuum booster, whatever the hell it was there was a bajillion of them out there because it had not changed, uh, design. And so at the aftermarket was huge. Um, the LKQ market was huge and you know, he could just, you find it any junkyard that had that truck was going to have it or any junkyard that had the truck that had that motor in it or the car that had that motor in it. They all ran the same thing. So there's something to be said for unchanging technology and the fact that it's extremely convenient and, you know what you're getting, you know what I mean? And so what if a bike doesn't change designs for a long time? It, I, I kind of felt funny in the 90s and the early 2000s, the late 90s and early 2000s when cars went from boxy to like streamlined. But now you look back at 80s cars and you're like, Ugh, they were just like so angular. And today's cars are going back to angular. You know what I mean? Like you look at look at the progression of a Ford Mustang. No, don't do that. But you can definitely see it on certain race bikes. You go back and look at like a VFR or like a CBR from the day, and it's drastically changed from what uh, bikes are looking now. So they go they go back and forth, and they're, everything's getting a little bit more angular because of the arrow is pretty much what I'm guessing. So cars kind of went from boxy to um, curvy for arrow reasons, and uh, I think bikes are going the opposite way. So, yeah, that's something I just thought about. Uh, I shit i should have mentioned at the beginning of the show because it was on my mind and i totally started rambling and forgot about it but yeah the design of you know technology basically uh 
I know it's something I constantly talk about, but it's something that I realize after listening to a few shows and a few more people's opinions on it is something that is pretty much necessary now. And it's, it's necessary because it's part of the design, you know what I mean? So, all right, well, it's been an hour and, uh, I've blabbered on long enough, mostly about nothing, which is like every show, right? So if you liked it, uh, give us a little thumbs up on Facebook, like our page. If you're from Wisconsin, um, I hope I got everything right. Please forgive me. Those, those pages were confusing to follow, but, uh, I, I really did enjoy seeing everybody's, uh, their witty racing banter. Cause I kind of missed that amongst my friends. And then, uh, apparently they have an affinity for dudes dancing around in their underwear. And, uh, yeah, that's all I'm going to say about that. After I get my battery back in my bike, I'm going to start doing some ride videos, hopefully. So stay tuned for those. Stay tuned for the hack videos, which are probably going to be hack videos. Like, I'm such a hack. Um, But yeah, stay tuned for all that. Hopefully, I'll be able to manage it somehow and and get it all put together for you. And we'll have some new stuff to look at. You won't just have to listen to me blab about nothing every week. So look forward to some upcoming interviews we have. And uh, like I said, check us out, please, on Facebook. Give us a review and or just a thumbs up. Give us a star rating, whatever you want to do in iTunes and the Google Play Store. Check us out on SoundCloud. Uh, you can look up creative-writing.com on the interwebs. And uh, check us out whenever we're doing something cool on uh, Twitter. We will post something there. Tumblr, always doing the Tumblr. So check that out. And if you get a chance, uh, check out the Motorcycles and Misfits podcast. I am just like a squealing little kid waiting for that to come out. I can't wait to see what went on at the quail. And uh, I've never never been up to the quail, but thought about going um, this year. But things just w- didn't work out. We're going to have a pretty busy summer and a pretty busy fall. So um, hopefully the podcast continues to delight you or annoy you in uh, whichever order you choose. All right. Well, I hope you're having fun doing whatever you're doing. Listen to this, and we will talk to you later. Creative Writing would like to apologize to the following. uh, Dan Carlin and Gareth Reynolds and Dave Anthony for using portions of their podcast, which we are sure qualify under the Fair Use Act. Hopefully, we're covering our ass here. Sorry, Dan Carlin. Sorry, Dave Anthony. Sorry, Dan Carol's. Sorry, Dan Carol. That's good enough. Gareth Reynolds will understand. Sorry to the Harley Davidson and Indian Motor Companies. Sorry, Teddy Roosevelt. Yes, Teddy Roosevelt. We are sorry to all Americans, past, present, and future. Sorry, Honda. Sorry, Kawasaki. Sorry, Suzuki. And sorry, Yamaha. <laughs> sorry, BMW. Sorry, BMW. Sorry, DKW. Sorry, Triumph, British Small Arms, Royal Enfield, and Crocker, uh, AJS. Anybody that we might have mentioned now, and edited Dada. it out. Yes, son. Let's start doing it. Let's start doing it. Peace and grease. Grab a bill, kicking gear. Mm, a quick
quit recording when I don't know the facts. We're on Screaming I'm on Fire. You know, the Axis, you know. Okay, okay. So, let's uh, look at look at the facts here. So, my history... Whoops. Did you ever see the movie Scanners? I can write with my hand. Pardon me about the burping. I'm having an adult beverage. So, basically... The they make gigantic ship crank shafts. Uh, fucking, I don't know. I'm gonna talk about. Um, I don't know what I'm gonna talk about. Oh, I never thought a podcast would be this hard to do. But I am proud that I could still remember how to write in cursive, even though looking at it like a, a drawing of pubic hair.